This is the Final Whistle Podcast from the Wrexham AFC media team. Hello, welcome to the Ask Wrexham Podcast. I'm Mark Griffiths from Wrexham AFC and of course this podcast is to try and respond to the brilliant feedback we get on hashtag AskRexham on Twitter. That's hashtag A-S-K-W-X-M. It started off as an idea to just get interaction during the matches and it has blossomed into something bigger than I could ever have imagined. Uh, thus, we have this podcast now every week where we answer the questions we can't get to during a match. And also, we look to uh, maybe delve a bit deeper into some as well. So, thank you all, as ever, for your interaction. As ever, yeah, like the video, subscribe if it's an audio podcast on your app, or on YouTube to Wrexham's YouTube channel. Come on, guys, make comments, review it. Let's make Wrexham great again. I really wish I hadn't said that. Okay, so our first uh, messages are actually just tidying up some issues from last week. So thank you very much for this. This is fantastic. So uh, matters arising. Well, Janie Lightning, last time I talked about the tank traps and there was a picture I wanted to show and I I couldn't um, find it. And well, Janie has come to my rescue. She said, are these the tank traps you were referring to? Uh, the pictures that we're showing here show them really nicely. There's some nice sheep in there and so on them as well for some non-race course tank traps. But yes, so they're the foundations, these cylindrical concrete shapes that are along the side of the stands uh, are the tank traps in question. So they were the foundations of the cop and were originally used, uh, peppered around Wrexham, uh, North Wales, in case there was an invasion in the Second World War, to stop tanks getting into the main towns. Wow, it's mad, isn't it? Just, history spins around. We also talked about music, and I was saying that I thought that football fans often sing quite banal songs. Dave Wood gave a good bit of info here about the Coventry song, because uh, we had that, a question about why they were singing uh, Country Roads. Um, and he said, to give it a bit more context, the Coventry fans actually sing Take Me Home Highfield Road, in reference to their previous stadium, as they'd never owned the ground they currently play at and had been kicked out and forced to play elsewhere at times. Yes, Highfield Road is where Wrexham played previous to the clash this season. Um, and yes, I didn't realise that was what they were singing. Um, but yes, uh, there's a nice bit of info, Dave. Thank you, you, you taught me there. And also on the same subject, John Williams said, following on from the podcast re bland derivative nature of some terrorist chants, is it time for Wrexham AFC to establish an official songwriting team? Well, guys, you know full well, the only way that terrorist songs can happen is from the people. So you guys need to have a, an upswelling here. Uh, John has given a starter, and it's a beauty, to the tune of Blur's Country House. I will now perform it. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Plays in a pass, a very good pass, Elliot Lee. He's got a lot of class, leaves you on your... Come on, John, this is a... kids are listening to this, help me out. Elliot Lee. He's got plenty of skills, give the crowd cheap flills, Elliot Lee. Turns up in Coventry, scores another worldie, Elliot Lee. That is absolutely beautiful, even though when I sing it, I make him sound like he's called Ellie Utley. 
Uh, well played. Uh, I'm, it's worthy even of going alongside this. We signed Oli Palmer, now I feel calmer. Straight down the middle, like Keir Starmer. He'll boss the Vanarama, League of the Farmer. Oil money now, Ken goes Deadpool's a charmer. He loves pets, Michael Henny promised him a llama. We signed Oli Palmer, now I feel calmer. Straight down the middle, like Keir Starmer. Defenders wear armor, cause he's gonna harm you. Bursting in the box, bringing bad karma. Goes high, goes low, like Michelle Obama. Leaves you feeling sad, like Greg without Palmer. We signed Oli Palmer, now I feel calmer. Straight down the middle, like Keir Starmer. Got sci-fi moves like future Rama. Skills make you spit in your arm. When he's up doing weight, Ronaldo's still in his pajama. Next message run away, cried to his mama. Played in Brazil, for Vasco da Gama. We signed Oli Palmer, now I feel calmer. Straight down the middle, like Keir Starmer. Guess it's from Banana Rama, let Navy Seals when it calls Osama. Stronger than the Hulk after a shot of Gama. When it's finished with you, you'll need an embalmer. We signed Dolly Palmer. Now I feel calmer. Straight down the middle, like Keir Starmer. Yes, what the youngsters, I believe, call a banger. I'm sure you'll agree. Right, let's move on. And can I say, if you're Al Hanna, then good news, because you sent in an Ask Wrexham tweet, which I loved, and I'm going to leave that to last on this pod because I could bang on about it for a while, but you, it's the sort of question I love. So we're going to have a bit of a tactical overview at the end. Uh, but let's move on to that for a moment. Uh, Jim in Monticello says, Mark, what an international following you have on Wrexham Player. Yeah, we're, we're delighted about that. Um, and says, that's, uh, the interaction with the fans is fantastic. And I just want to emphasise here, that is exactly what we were aiming for and are thinking of. And this is why we do this podcast too, because the... the the level of interaction, I think, the more, the more the merrier for a start. And secondly, for new fans who've picked us up through the documentary, uh, the stream now, obviously, is the best way to keep in touch, but we're the second line of attack, if you will. It does appear, certainly, away games are done with um, non-Wrexham commentators. So, yeah, um, we, we, we are, we've always been aware that we are one of your first lines of, of contact. And that was why we wanted to be, you know, easy to contact, because we wanted you to be able to to ask us questions and, and, and get direct answers to things you want to know. So thank you, Jim. I appreciate that because that is exactly what we want. That's exactly our intention. Right now then, Ron Wilk. This is the Altrincham game. Was inverted commas working on Friday afternoon listening to the broadcast. Um and also said there were lots of new names to remember and learn. And I replied to Ron, saying I wanted to just tell a little story. Um, right, that sort of situation is usually okay, because generally I will know our players, I will know our youth players to some extent as well. Um, and this particular crop I, I'm aware of, uh, maybe more than some previous ones too. So, so the Ultram game wasn't an issue. However, I'll tell you what is the nightmare scenario for commentating on a Wrexham game. Pre-season matches are not official matches. They're really just for bedding in tactics, getting the players fit. And during pre-season, you can have trialist players. Normally, trialists are players who haven't got a club, and you're not sure if you want to buy them or not. So you, you're allowed... The friendlies aren't real games. You can essentially pick whoever you want. Um... And so these players looking for a club might come on trial at the club for a couple of weeks, train with the players, might play in some games. Um, again, on the face of it, that's fine. But there's some fine prints coming. Trialists, sometimes the club doesn't want anyone to know who they are. The reason for this is perfectly simple. A club might get a player, have a look at them, think, OK, this could be a, a, an interesting permanent signing. 
but they're worried that if other clubs realise that player's on the market or is actively looking for a new club, that you might get gazumped. Is that just a British word? Uh, you might get somebody else see them and jump in and offer a contract and then you miss out. So you, you, you want them to have a sort of anonymous trial, which is difficult to do, of course, when you're playing games. I'm sure at higher levels it's utterly impossible, but at Wrexham's level it is possible. So what they do is they call players trialist A, trialist B, and then immediately you get people jumping all over it and trying to work out who they are. Sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't. The big nightmare in a pre-season match is that, right, as I'm doing it for the club, <laughs> there's nothing in it for me if I work out who somebody is. And I, I shouldn't say it, should I? Because the club don't want me to. This can get tricky when you've got a lot of trialists. <laughs> How do you get around it? I remember one particularly insane... Um, game where we had a player who was number 24 and so after the tv show 24 we decided to call him jack bauer throughout we did make a joke of it and the pre-season commentaries are often a little different from the proper serious commentaries i suppose they're a bit of a pre-season for us but yeah sometimes we'll do that sometimes we'll just make a big deal of it's try this day try this but i've actually done that more recent years I've, I've sort of that tends to be what i do it's odd but you know people understand the worst ever scenario I had was a pre-season game about six, seven, eight years ago at Colwyn Bay. So that's a, another North Walian football club and <laughs> up on the coast. And we were playing this game. And oh my word, it was an absolute nightmare. Because the Wrexham team had a number of trialists and new youth players in it. So it was difficult to work out who they were. If you want evidence of this, I've, I've mentioned Geraint Parry previously. He got that award on the pitch earlier in the month. And he has the most encyclopedic knowledge you could imagine. But he wasn't sure what a couple, who a couple of our players were. So that was tricky. The real problem, though, was that Colin Bay had a lot of trialists. They didn't give us team sheets before the match, which is highly irregular. And I had to try and resort to, whenever my co-commentators were talking, trying to lean into the crowd and ask Colin Bay fans who their players were because we didn't know their names or anything. You know, the stuff from last season, they'd, they'd released lots of their players on the previous year. Um, we could recognise some of their players simply because they used to play for Wrexham. But apart from that, we were stuck. And the problem was they helped us as much as they could, the fans, but they didn't know who a lot of them were because they were anonymous trialists. So they'd never seen them play before. They didn't know who they were. Our game was a fiasco. I really don't think I've got the recording of it. I, that may be because I destroyed the recording of it. That was just... It was a nightmare commentating on a game where you probably knew at best about 13 names of the players on the pitch at any one time. It was an experience, believe me. Uh, now, Jason Jones... Oh, Jason, I've let you down on this one. I'm going to keep trying to plug away. He, did, he does admit it's a ridiculous one. I mean, Rex about three Joneses in the squad at Altrigum. Uh, of course, James was captain. Dave played and Dan played. I was on the bench. Um, and Altrincham had two. So what's the most amount of a single surname that's played in a match? An impossible stat to find out, maybe, but it made me chuckle. I have been looking at games where I thought there were multiple same names and, and failed. Um, so I will keep looking. 
I won't point out as well that we also the two managers are both called Phil Parkinson. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, I digress. I have a, a you know Mandela effect. I think I've, I've discovered I'd had a Mandela effect because I remember us comment uh, playing Lingby Danish team a Lungby in the uh, in Europe, and I remember thinking oh it was easy to commentate on them because they only had about three last names spread across the whole team there were like four with one name five with another name and the other two with a third name and i thought okay there's only no danish fans listening to my commentary anyway and frankly chances are if i just keep using the last names i'm going to be okay um mandela effect i was completely wrong i looked up the st stats i didn't really look into this so much jason because i thought well i've got the answer already and i'm so annoyed at myself because when i looked her up i have no idea what the hell i was thinking that's not true at all. They've all got different names. Morton Vigos played for them, interestingly. Um, and also, I remember um, the name Kuhn being common. And that was one of the names I thought lots of them had. There's only two of them with that name. So I genuinely do not know what that, why I've got that recollection. It's absolutely wrong. I will keep looking. I did have a look at some Joneses as well. Um, I will keep looking, I promise. Uh, I will show you this little beauty, though. It's a little bit small if you're watching it on the screen. Um, it's Guinea's squad for the 2021 African Cup of Nations qualifiers. And in a squad of 30, 11 of them are called Kamara. That's not bad, is it? There's, there's also, there have been a few times when players have had two players with the same name, um, first and last. And, and there's also a silly answer to this, which is Bungay, which is in Suffolk, I think. Um, a charity match was done, it was played, where 30 people with the last name Bungay, which I've got to say is an odd last name, went to Bungay and played a match where every single player's name was Bungay. But I do, I hasten to add, that was a friendly match. That was not uh, a, a proper uh, fixture. It was, a, it was a, two made-up teams. It's quite quite a fun fact, away. Oh, and there's the other thing, and I'd, I'd love to go into this in more detail, but I think it's a bit too dull. Um, in Brazil, this has become less popular now, but in Brazil, the football culture tends to be people have nicknames. I mean, a great example of this, the great Pelé. Um, his name was Edson Lorantes de Nascimento. <laughs> Where's Pele come from? Um, he claims that he doesn't know. It's just people used to call him it on the street. And I think it was meant to be some sort of slang word for little kids, which didn't really have a meaning as such. Um, and lots of Brazilian players were known by their nicknames. Some of them are quite dull. Some of them are remarkable, uh, like a, an ugly player who, and this is local league, uh, you know, professional, but not international. An ugly player who was called Alien. That's nice, isn't it? So they'd call him Alien. Um, the, um, a player who was fast, who was called Gasoline. And then famous players, a lot of them did have nicknames. My favourite one is Dunga, who was the uh, captain of Brazil when they won the World Cup in the USA in 1994, who became manager for two different spells and managed Brazil in the World Cup. Um, and Dunga... Is, and I understand this is not strictly Portuguese, it's Brazilian Portuguese slang, but Dunga is dopey. And in Snow White, dopey is called Dunga. 
Um, and he was called this because in school he was supposed to be not very intelligent. <laughs> I just love the, the, the thought that therefore the Brazilian commentators, when they commentate, are saying, oh, Ronaldo gives the ball to stupid. But that is what they're doing. It's fabulous, isn't it? This, this has become less common because players' agents want them to get moves to Europe. And so they want to sort of advertise if they have any family links with Europe, which will make the move easier. Because if you get a European passport uh, for, by hook or by crook, you can you then have free movement throughout Europe. Uh, so they tend to now encourage players not to do that, but to use their genuine names because that will make a move easier. I and mean, it advertises the fact that they are of European heritage and that transfer will be easier. There are still some mad real names. My personal favourite real name is, uh, again, a very prominent Brazilian international, uh, Maicon, whose name Maicon Douglas. Um, that is genuinely, his parents love Michael Douglas, the actor, and at the baptism said we want him to be called Maicon Douglas, but they couldn't speak English, the priest couldn't speak English, the registrar couldn't, and so their pronunciation of Michael was Maicon. And so Maicon became his name. Great, isn't it? Why am I telling you all this boring stuff? Because of diminutives and superlatives. Um, what Brazilians like to do is put inho at the end to say someone's little, like ito in Spanish, and ao at the end to say big. So, it's quite common if players have the same name. They might be known by their their name and then their the area they came from. So two famous players called Juninho, who one of whom played for Middlesbrough, the other played for Lyon, were at the same club in Brazil at the same time. So one of them was known as Juninho Gaucho and one of them was known as Juninho uh, Pernambucano. Because they came from, those were the areas they came from. So Gauchos, I think, are people from São Paulo, I think. Uh, and the other one's from Pernambucano. And so, so, so they were given those names. But here's the beauty. Right. There's a player called Ronaldo at a club in Brazil. Then along comes Ronaldo, the superstar with a gap in his teeth. He was brilliant in the late 90s, early 2000s at the same club. So the first Ronaldo becomes Ronaldo, big Ronaldo, and the other one, the gap-toothed one, becomes Ronaldinho, little Ronaldo. But then, at the same club, along comes the guy who was known as Ronaldinho. He's called Ronaldo again. He's the guy who played for Barcelona with the long curly hair and, and had a gap between his teeth. This must be a, a, a Ronald trait in Brazil. And so... Ronaldo become, stays as Big Ron, Ronaldinho becomes Ronaldo, and the new guy, he becomes Ronaldinho. So players' names actually changing during their career. <laughs> Strange, isn't it? So three, this couldn't tolerate having three Ronalds, if you will. I read a thing as well, and I don't remember the details of it, that in Turkey, traditionally, they used to have, um, like, put a, a sort of formal... So epithet on the end of the name to, to, so you could delineate which one is which. So if you had two players with the same name, it automatically put this thing on the end of the name, which was either the elder or the younger. And so then they would be known as Suker the Elder or Suker the Younger. And this is not as popular now, but does still happen. And I read about a player who 
He had the same name as two players already at a Turkish club who were already called the Elder and the Younger. And so he was just known as whatever his name was, Three. And that was it. And he said he even he ended up having to call himself that because people just thought that's him. And, and in normal everyday life would call him Three as a last name. How strange. I've said too much on this. I didn't think I was going to. I'm sorry about that. So yeah, names. Thank you, Jason. I'll keep digging. Now, that's a good splashy noise I made there. Um, Thane Emrys Bertine says, I know I'm making right mess of your name, but please tell me, give me a phonetic spelling, sounding out of it. In the documentary Post-Injury, Rob McElhenney called Rob Lainton inarguably the best keeper in the National League. How true is this? And if so, what does this mean regarding Howard starting most games? Right, OK, I'll get to this because there are two more comments on this. One was a reply. Um... Yuan Hiraithog says it's true. Lainton is an excellent keeper. Sadly, he was badly injured at the end of last season. He's only been fit for a few weeks. Lainton hasn't done an awful lot wrong, and it's rare to change keepers in a winning team. So he sort of answered the question for me. Into, I mean, but he did answer the question for me. That pretty much is what I'm going to go on to say. Andrew McKenzie, though, does say, do you think Lainton will get his starting job back? I think there have been too many soft goals from Howard this season. Right, now, it's an interesting one. Firstly, I mean, Johan is, is completely right. Um, Lainton's injury was very serious. He, it's only fairly recently he's come back into training and then playing. He, he doesn't, to me, and to be fair, I, I don't see him train, uh, but to me, in the games, he hasn't quite looked his usual self yet, which is completely understandable. It was a really nasty wrist break that he had, so it's totally understandable if that is the case. It might be just me, you know, being maybe a little overcritical. But from what I saw those two games, I, I, you know, you sort of think, okay, we're, we're not going to rush him back into the sort of the heat, the wow, white hot heat of a title chase. Um, <clears throat> plus. It is often seen, and, and this is down to the hard-nosedness of a manager, but it's usually seen as, as difficult to dislodge uh, the established keeper. I mean, Howard is our first-choice keeper. He's been brought in to be that because Lainton's injured. Um, and, yeah, he... he I mean, I, Andrew McKenzie, I, I hear your points, and I, I, I do know what you mean... Because there have been the odd moments where you think, oh, could he do a little bit more with this? I don't want to push that too far, though, because I think Howard is doing well. And it should be pointed out, we've got the best defensive record in terms of goals conceded in the entire division. So he clearly is doing plenty right. Um, I think the point is, though, at the moment, for me, as you have said, the man in possession as a goalkeeper has that, role and unless a manager decides right I'm going to be hard nosed and say I'm sorry but I just think this guy's better than you then they're liable to, to keep the first one in you know players look at this sort of thing and judge whether managers are fair whether they give you a fair crack of the whip so it might be that there's a consideration of you know whether the players might think oh Howard's done well we're getting rid of him now that's harsh could be me next so there could be you know, those sort of things come into consideration Ultimately, though, Parkson will pick whatever he thinks is best. And I think Lainton is a fine goalkeeper. Is McElhenney right to say indisputably the best keeper in the National League? If he isn't right, he's darn close because I'm struggling to think of any keepers who are better than him at our level. Um, <clears throat> there's a couple who I've seen be outstanding, but I've also seen be horrible. 
And I mean, I'm not okay, horrible's maybe the wrong word. I mean, Slocum, the Notts County keeper, has often looked superb against us, but Notts County fans at the moment are a bit unhappy with him. The nature of a couple of goals he let in, they're not comfortable with. They brought in a new backup keeper, but actually he had an unhappy debut against Maidstone last weekend and made mistakes, uh, one of which led to an embarrassing goal from the halfway line. So, you know, and then uh, Sam Johnson at Halifax always looks good to me, but in the last few weeks I've seen him letting some goals that he'd be very unhappy about. So Lainson's pretty consistent. It's not, it doesn't happen very often that Lainson makes a big error. Um, but if he's not quite ready yet, you know, Howard has been doing well for us. I think that probably sums it up, I hope. Um, Darren's happy place. Now, I, I, I'm going to be less useful. I, this is the question I'd love to be able to answer, and I'm not going to be very useful. Darren's happy place is, can you explain why it's significant, the status on the lease of the race course? Um, does the lease status affect the ability of the club with the new cop development? Right, I have, I have no info from inside the club about this, and so <clears throat> I'm wary of speculating. I think I'll lay out some obvious facts and scenarios, if you will. Um, the trust was set up to protect the club. And, I mean, it's gone through a few iterations now, really, and is very much a different body to what it was when it ran the club. Because I think a lot of people feel, well, that issue's been resolved by Rob and Ryan coming in, and people don't feel so concerned by it, uh, the threat to the club. They feel we're in safe hands. I am one of those people. I mean, please don't get me wrong. Um, I do, though, understand maybe a desire from, for people to be still be vigilant. And I know that there's still some discussion to be had in terms of, you know, f safeguards, not against Rob and Ryan in case they go rogue, but, you know, safeguarding the club in terms of after they've left, which I hope will be a very long time away. But nonetheless, you know, they, they won't be in charge of the club forever. So I think they want some safeguards in regard to that. So whether it's just a, a one of those slow bureaucratic things like we saw in the documentary, it may well be. Um, the club must be a little impatient if they were going to put a statement out like that. They are clearly trying to get some movement going. Um, it may well be that the trust are just wanting. So they've said in their last minutes that they've taken legal. They're, they're taking legal advice on it, so they're taking it seriously. You know, I think that's good as as guardians of the club, if you will. I think it's good that they take their responsibility seriously, and I hope it doesn't hold us up in any way. I just wonder, because that came out just before the announcement, I think it was the same day, of the levelling up funding not coming to Wrexham. I just wonder whether, you know, those who applied have been told with an embargo not to spread it, whether they've been successful or not. And the club realising that just wanted to try and get the lease sorted because it might well be that if we can't get that funding and we have to apply for grants, that having every single element of the ownership of the ground tied down and in Wrexham's name helps us to get funds, helps us to get grants. I wonder if that might be partly what it was. And it was just a little sort of reminder saying, come on, let's get moving. Let's get this done. If we can't do it the way we wanted to, we've got to get it done the other way as quickly as possible. I suspect that's what it was. Um, Darren's happy place also had a question on loan signings because we talked about that last year last week rather if we put out some of the kids on loan would we only loan out to teams in the lower leagues and not in the Vanaramas since we don't want them to come back to hurt us can the condition of the loan be that they can't play against us right now two parts to that question the players we will look to loan out I think will be young lads I don't, I think, I don't think the first team squad has got any 
slack, if you will. So I don't think there's any first teamers liable to go out, and they're the ones who might go to our level. So I think I think the, the practical answer in the current situation, those young lads will either go to lower divisions to get first team experience or League of Wales. Um, yeah, I can't think of anyone in our current first team squad that we would say, yeah, you're just surplus to requirements, you know, clear off. Um, or, you know, nice, more nicely, go and get some time on the pitch somewhere else. The idea of not coming back to hurt us. Now then, it always used to be that you could ask for that condition in a loan that they can't play against you. I think that's been withdrawn at our level now. I don't think you can ask for that. I need to double-check that. Again, the aforementioned Gary and Parry, Parry will give me the answer on that. I'll get, I'll get on to him. Um, but definitely loan players can play against you because one of our players has played against us already this season. Jake Hyde played for Southend. Jake Hyde um, is still technically speaking a Wrexham player he won't play for Wrexham again because his contract ends next summer and he's on loan to Southend United until next summer um, so he won't play for us again because we will release him in the summer you know obviously if we've loaned him out you know we're doing that to let him play because we weren't going to really look to use him so yeah he had a great chance to score against us at best actually in the nil nil draw at south end earlier this season he may well come back to the race course and i'd like to think he'd get a decent reception as well because he, he did nothing wrong for us i think his injuries really set him back um so i think you can't stipulate that anymore at our level i think i'll double check that um <clears throat> kenneth ryan james now then says uh, will the postponed league matches be made up before May? Because we have had a few games that we've had to fit in here and there. Right, the answer I will hope to illustrate in graphical form. Right, so if you're not, if you're listening to this, I'll try and explain what I put on the screen. Is every week till the end of the season, starting with next week. So it starts off with the 23rd of January, which is next Monday, and there is a midweek game. So if I I put a bar across. The weeks with midweek games. So next week we've got a midweek game. There is no room to slot in another match. The week after, we have a free midweek. Then we have a rather scary-looking five weeks of playing weekend, midweek, weekend, midweek, weekend, midweek, weekend, midweek, weekend, midweek. We must surely see some rotation of the squad in that time um, because that's that's quite a testing period. We then have a nice little spell of four weeks with no midweek game, so that's nice. Um, I've I've signified a midweek game on the week beginning the 10th of April, but actually what's happening there is the traditional Easter fixtures where you play, and this is quite a strain on players, you may well see rotation for this, they play Good Friday, Easter Monday, so they get... Uh, two-day break in between, so it's a bit squashed together. So I'm counting that as sort of, you know, we play on the Friday, Saturday, Friday, we count that as a midweek game. It's two games over a weekend. So we essentially have a big block of Monday, Tuesday games, and then nothing. And we have, at the moment, every game we're scheduled to play is still scheduled. We've rearranged everything. So in answer to that question... We theoretically, well, okay, I mean, the week after next is clearly going to be left blank because there's nothing to put in there. <clears throat> but there are four clear midweeks. At a pinch, I guess we could play Saturday, 
Tuesday, Friday. We won't want to, though. That would be an emergency thing. And then there are two more weeks after Easter. But there will be some complications. Let me show you. Firstly, there's a possible complication, which is if we draw with Sheffield United, that empty week will have a game in it. That's why it's been left empty, because FA Cup games take priority. So you've got to get cup matches played so that you can get to the next round. You can't have one game holding the whole competition up. So we have to... That's why that week midweek is blank, because that game would have a Sheffield United replay should we draw the game against them in the cup. There's also very likely to be one other alteration. Now, we've got knocked out of the FA Trophy. That means we theoretically won't have any more disruption to our league campaign due to the FA Trophy. However, I think we will have one game off because the last of those weeks, in, uh, which have a midweek game, on the Saturday, we're supposed to be playing Southend at home. In, but they are still in the FA Trophy. They are at home to York. And if they win at home to York, they will be playing on the 4th of March. So, we will lose a Saturday game, so there will be one more to reorganise. We don't have to worry about the other rounds of the FA Trophy, because in the next round of the FA Trophy, it's played on the weekend we play Oldham. Oldham are out, so we don't have to worry about that. And then the round after that, no beg your pardon, we play Wealdstone. And then the round after the one I've noted the South End could be involved in, <clears throat> it's a semi-final, and that's against Oldham. They're out. So, Wilson and Oldham are out. <clears throat> so, the three dates that we have in the FA Trophy that clash with league matches, two of them will go ahead, but South End will be favourites to win at home to York in the FA Trophy, and if they do so, then our game on that Saturday will have to be rearranged. By that point, though, we will have, what, four, five, six empty midweeks to slot it into. Um, so, in answer to the question, unless something amazing happens with the weather, it has been snowing this week, but not that, you know, it's it's not been as bad as when it was frosty, and the snow is thawing now, um, we will be absolutely fine. We're nowhere near a crisis. Obviously, all those midweek games stacking up will put strain on players, but we're nowhere near a sort of fixture crisis. You do see teams sometimes at the end of the season having to play Tuesday, Thursday. Rare, very rare, can happen. We are nowhere near that, and it would take some amazing cataclysmic weather disaster for that to happen. Right then, this one, and I want to thank Beer Bear Beer <clears throat> for pointing this excellent thread out to me on Twitter about American fans. So let me take a good drink of water, my throat's going a bit dry. So the thread was posted by V Triggered. And uh, obviously that's not an Ars Rexham thing, but uh, Beer Bear Beer pointed this out to me. And I, if I, I hope you don't make think I'm cheeky if I just stick my own and give my opinion on it. <clears throat> the um, V Triggers said, hot take, Rexham's popularity in the US is cool, but it's also kind of annoying. People will refuse to watch MLS because of quality, but will happily support a club in the fifth tier of English soccer. Sorry, but you're not going to argue the National League is better than the MLS. Now, there's a, well, 619 replies, 600 retweets, over 2,500 likes. This thread exploded. Um, can I firstly say, well played V-Triggered, because you have been so calm and sensible in handling 
everybody who's replying, including people who say slightly mad or provocative things to you, um, you've been very classy because you clearly are not trying to upset or offend anybody. Some people did take offence on either side of the argument. Um, so you handled it beautifully, I've got to say, with real class and dignity. It's just a really interesting discussion point. It is fascinating. Here's my sixpenneth from a Wrexham fan's point of view. Um, but a Wrexham fan, I hasten to add, who has seen, well, okay, one MLS game live. I, I saw the uh, the Red Bulls play a game, gosh, when Henri and Marquez were playing for them. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I firstly, I completely share V-Triggered's frustration. He does point out that he sports leads later on the thread. He's not saying you can't have a European team. He's not meaning to have a dig at Wrexham. It's just why don't people support their local team? Well, I completely agree. I mean, Wrexham's history is we are an hour from Liverpool. We are an hour from Manchester. People go off and support Everton, Liverpool, Man United, Man City, and then we're the little old local team saying, well, why don't you come and watch us? And One of the interesting aspects of the takeover has been the fact that for years, people have said, oh, we should be able to harness all this support in North Wales and Mid Wales, because there's no professional teams as such in Mid Wales, um, and be a, you know, potentially a well-supported club. But it's not until Rob and Ryan came in that we've had anybody with the vision and wherewithal to execute that. So... <laughs> it, 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 we understand that sensation too. Um, I agree. Um, I think the MLS is fascinating to me in so many regards. Outside of uh, North America, it feels to me like people underestimate it because clearly one of the, the better leagues in the world it's, it's an, and it's clearly improving and developing all the time. You look at the quality of players come out from it. I mean, there were players mentioned in the thread, but if I could throw one into the, the, the ring, I would say that um, Almiron, who is currently tearing up the Premier League, widely regarded as the best league in the world, uh, wouldn't have got his Newcastle move if he hadn't gone to. It was that Atlanta United, where they brought in uh, like three players who played with him previously in South America and brought injected a lot of pace into their team, and 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 that was what really caught the eye. So, you know, people uh, underestimate the MLS are, are foolish. Um, I, I think the key thing for me is that the people attracted to Wrexham are not necessarily just football fans. I feel that a lot of them say to us on Ask Wrexham that they have not really followed football before, but the documentary grabbed them as a human interest story. And I think that's definitely the case, and that was definitely the intention as well. So I think that it's been not a case of looking for a club, deciding, oh, I reject MLS, I go for Wrexham. I think it's more, I wasn't looking for a club, but this show really grabbed me. It got, it's got an emotional punch, and I, 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 want, I want to have a piece of that. I think that's what it is. Um... And a lot of fans as well who are following us have talked about their MLS clubs on Ask Wrexham, uh, so, which fascinates me. So I think there's an element of that. I mean, I'm never going to knock uh, US soccer. Uh, you know, the, the USL and the MLS, uh, clearly, well, I've seen the MLS. It's, it's on the sports channels here now. It's much more high profile than it used to be. And it's taken much more seriously here than it used to be. 
Um, and you know, so that's clearly a fine league. And and the USL one, I mean, we've got you've got two ex Wrexham players at the helm of that, uh, Mark Cartwright and Jake Edwards. So I'm always bound to be impressed by that. But that doesn't get TV coverage over here. Um, but yeah, the other issue I suppose is naysayers within North America, which is partly maybe um, people who are committed to the in inverted commas American sports and maybe see MLS as an interloper or maybe even as a sort of Hispanic interloper possibly um, and then just people who just just don't happen to get into it or, or decide that when you see it, it, it isn't the same as uh, NBA gridiron but having said that to be fair they've had decades head start um, MLS seems to me to be developing extremely well I will point out Wrexham actually have quite a fair amount of links with uh, football in North America before the MLS um, Arvon Griffiths who was a legendary player played more games for Wrexham than anybody else played for Wales managed Wrexham the most successful Wrexham team in the club's history he um, played in the States in the NASL uh, Mickey Thomas, who is a massive icon at the club and another Welsh international, he was at the Wichita Wings. I think he played six aside indoor as well. Uh, Brian Tinian, who was an sort of iconic player from the 70s, uh, he also moved across and is still there. Um, and <laughs> he is a, he's a, well, this is a tenuous Wrexham connection. Maybe it isn't a Wrexham connection particularly, but Phil Woosnam, the man who. Uh, really pushed the expansion of the NASL and is credited as well the man with the vision to bring in Pele, Beckenbauer, Cruyff, Best and also the man who pushed too far and probably ruined it ultimately and was the US national team's manager um, was a North Walian and a Welsh international and a, I've got the proof of that because he went to Bangor University I got a photo of him in a local football team called the Freebooters with my dad who was also one of the graduates of Bangor University it's a brilliant picture. So, um, yeah, there's loads of links. Plus, of course, I did talk about this in the previous Ask Wrexham. Um, Eddie McIlvenny, the captain of the US when they beat England in the 1950 World Cup, played briefly for Wrexham and was re was rejected by us. And that's actually a point. That, that There's some interesting things I'd like to consider. The, the idea that, sorry, you're not going to argue the National League's better than the MLS. Right, firstly, 100% correct. Uh, the fifth league is not going to be better than the MLS. But there's two interesting points I want to raise for that. Um, some people on the thread talked about, but the the passion of the fans. The now now I I think when people I think people massively underestimate the passion of the MLS fans. I was massively impressed by the atmosphere in the game I went to. When I watch MLS games, I feel that there's something really good there, and there's something of all those football fans who following the game on TV, having the opportunity to go to games and get involved, build up something nice, and they have that awareness of the ultra-culture without necessarily the negative connotations it has in Europe and creates unique and exciting atmospheres. So I, I like it a lot. Um, having said that, you the documentary brings across brilliantly the sort of raw passion you get in English low-level football. And that's one key thing to say. Only a fool would say that the National League is a better standard than the MLS. Um, but it is a good standard. And the I think the concept of 
hometown clubs with real roots in history, Wrexham being the third oldest club in the world, I think that has an attraction um, in North America. If I'm wrong on saying this, please slap me down. Franchise sport over here certainly has the image of, you know, a club can get moved at any moment. The Brooklyn Dodgers can suddenly become the LA Dodgers. Now, I have, you know, the Springfield Isotopes could go to Albuquerque, you know. Um, so I think th those roots are quite deep. There is one example of something similar happening to that in Britain when Wimbledon in South London moved to Milton Keynes, which is what a good hour by car north of London. And that was painted as Milton Keynes is a new town, uh, so it didn't have traditional roots at all. MK Dons, who are in the Football League now, because they took Wimbledon's place, really, I think, by most standards, are football fans. And remember, this happened about, what, 20 years ago. They are pariahs. British football fans dislike them intensely. Um, and also, Wimbledon formed their own club in South London, trying to stick to their roots. They have managed incredibly to get back up into the Football League themselves. Ollie Palmer came from Wimbledon to Wrexham. And they, I think, are a team who have a lot of affection amongst football fans because of this profound dislike at this one time. A team was like properly uprooted to a completely different place. Other clubs haven't moved. No, Arsenal are North London. They started over South London. And at the time, that was something which caused friction. But that's not the, it's, they're still within London. Um, and that's certainly not something that which is carried on but the mk dons thing i don't think they'll ever ever shed that sense of that's the club everyone doesn't like um so i think those roots those local roots dig very deep and hey come on you guys in north america you do enjoy the sort of old history stuff in britain um i don't know that from chatting to, to relatives and other people who come over and they really enjoy the tudor stuff um it's got to be said in Britain, we, we barely know our own history. It's quite shocking, I think, but we think it must take it for granted. The other interesting thing about quality, though, is that the, a big thing about this British system, unlike anywhere else in the world, and I'll confidently say that, the quality goes down a long, long way. So um, in other countries, football countries, outside the top two leagues, usually the quality tails off massively. Um, interestingly, Spain have just been trying to address this by making their third level more professional. But essentially, after the top two leagues in Spain at the moment, you have a sprinkling of biggish clubs who've gone down from there, and really, it's regional, and it's semi-pro. Britain, five the five leagues are pretty much all professional. There are some semi-pro teams in our level, but they're starting to get a bit weeded out. Altrincham went professional last summer, one of the traditional semi-professional teams. And the standard and quality and the passion about the, the game uh, amongst British fans goes a hell of a long way down. You'll go below Wrexham's level and you'll find some traditional clubs with real val um, history and values and strong community ties. So I think that, that must interest people. And, and I get considerable crowds as well. Um, so that, I think that also must interest people that we have that. That is quite an interesting and unusual thing. Um, and one of a little thing as well like I said MLS is superior to the National League <laughs> I wouldn't dream of arguing otherwise it is weird though it shows how good the National League can be 
that we've had a a, a couple of it, a strange little comparisons with the national with the MLS. Now the first one I'm inclined to reject a bit. I think it's a bit of a false bit of information. John Rooney, Wayne Rooney's younger brother, came for a trial with Wrexham when he was fairly young, and it was clear he wasn't going to be at the big clubs like Everton, like and Wayne Rooney was. And we rejected him. We didn't think he was good enough. He went to the Red Bulls and did get taken on. And at the time, you thought, well, OK, then what does that tell us about the MLS? Well, I think it tells us, A, we didn't fancy him when another club did. That happens. Um, and B, that the MLS maybe wasn't as well developed then as it is now. Uh, Rooney, ironically, came back to us, played one season with us, which was an Oz season, in which he was sort of successful, but it was very strange. One day I'll tell that story if you want me to. Um, so he's a strange one. A more interesting comparison is that in our second season in the National League, we, at the end of the season, brought in, no, first season, actually, we brought in a French centre-back, Aurelien Collin. And he looked good. I liked the look of him, even when he got sent off on his debut for us in a FA Trophy quarter-final. Um, he looked good. I liked him a lot. We tried to keep him. He decided to leave. He went to Greece for a little bit and then went across to the MLS soon afterwards. And, of course, Colin, uh, students of the MLS will know, be an excellent player, has won uh, the MLS overall. It's interesting to see him as a player... You know, who was playing at our level and then quite soon afterwards is looking excellent in the MLS. I'm not trying to make out that the difference, so there's not much difference. I'm definitely not trying to say that. I'm stupid to say that. But I would say that there is... It, it's not a, a, a yawning chasm. Good play, There are a lot of good players in the National League who would do a good job at a higher level. A lot of them are at Wrexham. Right. I think I'll finish with that one. Um, I've got a couple of the short ones, and then Al Hanna's big question. He's got a brief one for him. He said, what's the Central League Cup our reserves are playing in? Is it a similar team from the one that played at Altrincham? Yes. They play in the Central League, which is like a, a, a regional reserve team league. So they play against the team's reserves. And then the Central League Cup is like a cup competition for those teams in the Central League. There's more than one division in it, and so they all get together and have a knockout cup alongside their league, a bit like the FA Cup or the FA Trophy. It's reserve football, yes. It's not first-team football. And SJ Need Lightning um, <coughs> says, Parkinson uh, signed a nice clutch of players for Wrexham from the upper leagues. Have any of the players released since the takeover gone up? Right. Since the takeover... So I'm not going to count players who released. Uh, I mean, well, well, you know, the, the summer before Parkson came in. Although Fika Kelleher did go to a higher division after we released him, but then came back down. He played against us when we beat Solly Hull 5-0. Um, two players have played under Parkinson and then have been released, but have gone up rather than down. <coughs> Peggy pardon. Dior Angus, of course, this season, went to Harrogate Town. He has, he's only played, I think, four games. Started one, come on as a sub for three. So he's not had much football since he's played. That's the level above Wrexham. And another team at the level above Wrexham, and so League Two, is Sutton United. And Kwame Thomas was released at the end of last season. It was a shame because he was on fire the season before, but then had a very bad injury. Basically landed awkwardly in training and landed on his foot and ruptured his Achilles. Really bad injury. Um, and he didn't really look the same last season, but he has got quality. It's a real shame. <clears throat> and so we released him, I think quite reluctantly, 
and he went too sudden. He's played more than Angus, but not much more. I think I saw he's played, started about seven games, and he also hasn't scored. So those two have gone upwards, but they haven't made much impact. Um, and Jane also threw in a PS. How many upper league players has Parkinson signed since coming to Wrexham AFC? Again, apologies to all your listeners, because I made a little graph. Ignore the the uh, decimals on the size. We didn't buy two and a half players or anything. I just oh, I just didn't get the axis right. Um, this The table I've got up represents all the players that Phil Parkinson has brought in. I did realise afterwards that I forgot about Charlie Trafford. I don't think he had a club at the time, though. So, And he didn't play any games for us, so I'm going to try and say that. But I, I should mention him because I put Lee Camp in there. <clears throat> so basically, he's brought one player in from the Premier League. That's Bryce Hosanna, who obviously had not played in the Premier League. Uh, he was a, just a young player there and a, and a real talent. We, he's brought in three directly from championship clubs. He's brought in six from League One, so the, the, the curve is going up. And now it's very interesting, this. Nine from League Two, and then it drops back down. So you've got 19 signings from the leagues above us, and that shows you everything you want to know about our transfer policy, bringing in players who are good at a higher level so that we are strong. 19 players from higher levels. Some of them, like Sean Brisley, have gone now, but <clears throat> over the two seasons he's done that. And then he's brought in two from the actual National League itself. Um, a quick condition I need to add to that. For example, Harry Lennon, I put him down as League Two, but he, at the end of his last season with Southend, Southend got relegated. So you could argue he brought him from, he got him in after he'd been with a team which is a National League team. But it works the other way as well because uh, Paul Mullen, I've also put in as a League Two player, even though he was League Two player of the year and got promoted. So you could argue we brought him in from League One. Depends how you want to cut it. I've just said what the league they last played in. But it is quite striking that, isn't it? 19 players brought in from the Football League or Premier League and then only two from the National League and two others from lower down. One of them was Lee Camp, who was an emergency signing. And because we weren't allowed to buy players from higher tiers because of that transfer window thing we used to have, and also one player from the League of Wales. And that is another emergency goalkeeper. I always get the different parts of his last name wrong. Calderbank Park. Is it Kai Calderbank Park, I reckon? Um, so the two ones from very low levels have not come near playing in the team, really. That is quite striking, isn't it? Only two players from the actual National League. Wow. Mendy and Hyde, that is. So you can see our, our intentions there, can't you? Our transfer intentions. Right, so here we go with the big question. Al Hanna's big question. Hi, <clears throat> big Wrexham fan here from Iowa. Love it. I was hoping you could give me a crash course on Phil's tactics and shape he uses in his game. Is it a defensive or offensive shape? Why is it the only shape he uses? And what does this term overload I've been hearing mean? Well, I, I think I answered the overload bit in the commentary but i'll just say quickly overloading is something teams try to do where they get two players in the same area of the pitch outnumbering one from the other side so for example um anthony ford goes down the right hand side and he occupies the other side's left back so it's one on one but then james jones on the right side of midfield will come into that area and you see him do this a lot this run going round the outside and now that defender is a problem because he feels he's got to watch forward 
but Jones can run into a position where he can't be picked up by that defender because if he leaves Ford, Ford will run in and try and score. And that means that Ford can play Jones in in a good position instead. So overloading is trying to get a, a two-on-one or a three-on-two situation which you can exploit to release a player into a dangerous position because you've outnumbered the opposition in that part of the pitch. Um, right, I'll, I'll answer the shape stuff before I go. We have some fun with graphics, okay? So, um, I think just talking about why he only uses one shape. He plays three at the back. Um, okay, let's. I'm going to establish some ground rules first, if that's okay. Lots of people talk about formations, and yeah, it's it's very useful shorthand to talk about what teams are trying to do. But please remember that probably professional managers will be a little reluctant to reduce themselves to those three five two, four four two, four three three uh, ideas, because players will fulfil many roles in many parts of the pitch during a match. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a nice shorthand to get a rough idea of what a team's trying to do but it's quite rare if you watch a game that that team's actually in that shape you might argue that Wrexham have more of a 2-3-5 shape when we have the ball for example and I'll illustrate that in a moment so some people get very hung up on formations and although it's, a, it's an interesting shorthand and an interesting conversation ultimately it's a bit daft. I mean, I've seen a lot of people say, oh, Parkinson's approach is very defensive because he's playing five at the back. Well, as I'll show you in a minute, one man's five at the back is another man's three at the back. I would say the way Parkinson does this is very attacking and allows us to commit extra players going forwards. Um, why does he keep the same shape? Some managers do this, some managers don't. Um, it's a matter of choice and taste. Uh, some managers will tinker around with shapes. They'll work on a few different formations, which are very different for players to use. Some will switch from one game to another. Um, Pep Guardiola, the Man City manager, is a very good example of this. Um, he is a genuine philosopher of tactics. His argument is, if you, try, if you think of it in terms of formations and splitting defence midfield attack, he says that he wants to have a, a situation where he's got one man extra in those areas. Now, obviously, if you think about it, the same number of men as the other side, so you can't really do that. But it's that's things like if you play two strikers like Wrexham do, he'd play three central defenders, so he's got an extra man there. Then in midfield, if the other side play four men, he might then have five across there. Does that make sense? So an, he wants an extra man in those bands that run across the pitch to try and take advantage of it. And then if a team plays one striker, he'll probably have a back four, which means two defenders will stay in there to watch that one striker. And then the fullbacks will go up and join in elsewhere in the pitch. Um, then Klopp, the Liverpool manager, I would say, although this season he's veered away from it, but I would say generally he doesn't tend to change his formation. He does tend to stick to similar shapes, but that's because he has a very grooved way of playing. And I think part of the reason he shifted away from it is because things are going a bit wrong and he's trying to find something else that might work. And I think I can, you can see the advantage of taking Parkinson's stable approach because you really see a, a very settled pattern of play now that could become a problem if teams work us out but at the moment they're not because we've got so much quality and firepower we blow them away anyway but you can see players very familiar with their roles and what they should do in certain different situations like i said that james jones overlapping run so when players start getting that settled into a formation 
I think good things happen because they interact quicker. That would be my argument. In terms of having other formations, well, actually Parkinson does use another formation, but he doesn't use it from the outset. His emergency, you know, in case of emergency break glass formation, is to take off a defender and put on an attacking player. And we saw that in the Bromley game. And we then go to um, a different formation altogether with an extra attacking player. He doesn't do that at the start of games because the way he does it is very attacking and very risky. And I'll, I'll show you it in a second. So let, let's let's go across to the old tactics board and we'll have a proper graphic illustration of this. This might be where if you're an audio viewer, you think, you know what? He's really talking now about stuff that I can't see. I give up. If so, I apologise. Wrexham's setup, if you look at it this way. So you've got goalkeeper. You've got the three central defenders. So Hayden on the right. Tozer in the middle. Tunnicliffe on the left-hand side. Your two wing-backs. Ford on the right. McFadden on the left. I'm just looking at what we might do this weekend. Then in midfield, a midfield three. O'Connor plays in the middle of the three a little bit deeper. Lee to the left. Young to the right. And then up front, you have strikers Palmer. And Mullin. Now, like I said, that, that would be how you would lay us out just as a rough idea of what the formation is, but think about what happens when we go forwards into attack. So, two strikers start to go forwards up the pitch. The whole thing sort of shifts upwards. Dependent on certain factors, we'll decide where the defensive line goes in a moment, but something you will notice there when I put the attacking players up is that there's no width, is there? The five attacking players there, O'Connor is more of a defensive covering player, I would say. But the others are looking to get forwards and attack and cause problems. Now, width can be caused by central strikers coming out. Sometimes people complain, why is Palmer going wide? Well, Palmer goes wide. And there's a space for Lee to attack, for example. And also, Palmer goes wide because... The wing-backs, and this is where I'm arguing that five at the back, three at the back is attacking. Ford and McFadgen play a high line when we're attacking. So they become our wide attacking players. And they will, you watch, because we've got three at the back, it enables you to send both wide players up at the same time. Now these guys will step up as well to about the halfway line. Sometimes this frustrates me as an ex-goalkeeper. You hear people complaining of goalkeepers, get back in your box. No, there's a lot of space in behind the, the three defenders. Howard needs to be out here so he can come and sweep up if the ball's thumped over the top. He doesn't want to be back there. It amazes me that people watch football and can't see that, if I'm perfectly honest with you. But you do hear people saying it. And then we won't be rigid like that. So let's take Hayden, for example. Hayden does love a gallop forward. So you watch him throughout the game, Hayden will often come into these sort of areas, will often interchange with Ford. He might go around the outside, allowing Ford to come in. And now we're creating overloads now, aren't we? Now we're creating an area here with a, a crowd on that right-hand side. And the defenders might have a problem. If they play four at the back, they've got a defender, a left back, where Ford is. Well, who does he pick up? Does he go and watch Mullen? Does he go and watch Hayden? What if Young makes a run? Yeah, these are overloads. These are situations. Mullen might drop off here. But then that allows maybe Ford to come inside. Or maybe Ford keeps the width and pulls the full back out. And Ford attacks that. So it's all about creating space. I think it's always good advice, actually, to say to people, if they've not watched football before, look for space. Look for sp where people are trying to create the space. 
if I try to throw in a, a few defenders, maybe I'll illustrate that a little bit better. I don't know why I'm slavishly sticking to their positions here. But, you know, so you've got your back four there. Ford stick, stays wide. All right, now what's he going to do now? Number three. Does he think, well, we've got Young here. I have to keep an eye on his run. But then Ford's got acres of space here. When the ball is over on Wrexham's left, that's the right place to be for the, the left back. Leave Ford. By the time it takes the ball to switch over, he can try and shuffle across. But what if Hayden's coming in? What now? What if he does decide to go a bit wide and everybody's just a little bit more spread out and now you've got the problem of gaps and Mullins got pace and he can run in between here and then Hayden comes up to help. Don't arrive too early, Hayden. Or if you do, other players can come round to try and use the space he's left. You know, I said about James Jones. That's a classic James Jones run if I just pull him back a little bit. So that, that overload thing I was talking about. So Ford comes forwards, but Ford is very good on the ball. He's comfortable cutting inside. Now, James Jones, I know Young's been playing this position lately, but Ford comes in, he occupies and engages with number three. He's got the ball, but then Jones just keeps making this run all around the outside. He's got such energy and pace, and he'll just keep going and keep going. And now he's got a major problem with number three, because if he drops off, Ford's and Mark's in a very dangerous position. If the centre-back tries to come across... Watch out, Maidstone had major problems with this, by the way, um, when they lost 4-1 at York, communication along the back four. So, number four has got to be alive here and come in and cover that gap, otherwise Mullen is going to score. Because Young's going to come around the side and pull it back to him, or he's going to pull it back to Ford, or even Palmer's going to make an unexpected run, or O'Connor will. Do you see? So, they need to close that gap down, or Mullen's going to come in. And it still creates danger around the outside if they stick to the far post and Palmer's great in the air. So it's all about creating spaces and pulling teams out of shape. There's something else which I mention a lot in commentary, which is diagonals. So I could just reset that. Sorry. That's a te I'm getting tedious now, aren't I? Um, can I make a football turn up? Hang on. I haven't used this for a long time, so I do apologise. Oh, football. Good, good, good. Hello, football. Come on. Come on the pitch, football. Come on, football. Oh, this is embarrassing, isn't it? Hey, a football. Okay. So Toza's has got it. Now, here's something Toza can do very well, and not many defenders can do this. In the old days, defenders were useless on the floor. They were just strong, and they stopped other teams. But defenders now are expected to be good on the floor, bring the ball forwards, or pass it well. Um, Toza, usually it's easier, if you're right-footed, to hit diagonal balls in the, to, the, to your left, hitting across yourself. Toza, you will notice when you watch, can hit them in both directions. That is a good skill to have. It's a skill that lower division centre-backs don't tend to have. Um, so that's very, very useful because these diagonals are important. And I know I'm only putting four defenders up, but I, 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 hopefully it will still illustrate the point. So Toza's got it. Hayden's gone up a bit in support. Something close, just maybe a little more conservative, isn't he? Just, we need to leave two at the back if they've got one striker up. Now, if Toza pings that ball across now to McFadgen, who has got lots of, he's kept the width, then the defenders have all got to shuffle across. They've all got to shuffle across a bit, haven't they? Yeah? To deal with that. Having done that, if we then recirculate and McFadgen pops it in and Lee can quickly put a diagonal or a switch into the other side, 
Ford now has lots of space and they're shuffling across again. And it's like I tried to illustrate before, are they going to lose their discipline? Are the gaps not going to be right? Is the communication going to be for? The other thing to watch out for, of course, when they're shuffling around, maybe they want to they step out and try and hold the line around the edge of the area. But if this guy isn't quick and does it, he's playing Mullen on side when he runs in between there. Goal. So it's all about, that's why Wrexham are patient on the ball. Wrexham are a passing team. They want to establish this sort of shape when they go forwards. And then they want to shift the ball around. They want to get players moving about. Lee is quite an interesting player because he's not scared of making a really unexpected run into a strange area. And he's got good players who can spot that and good players who can adapt to it. And... That's what we're doing when we're patient with the ball. You know, players might pop up in the wrong place, but play, we're trying to manipulate the other side around so they get into areas of the pitch they don't want to be in, and then you can create space and maybe with switch. Uh, so I'll move the player. I don't think O'Connor is that quick. By swift switching of the ball, long diagonals, you can then pick out those players in space and you can try and get around the side or or even get through the the. These are the channels, um, the area between the centre-back and the full-back. Why won't these arrows work? Oh, hang on, maybe on that. So that sort of area running into there, the channels. So between the centre-back, number four, and the right-back, number two. So can you get runners going in there as well? Um, he, do, he plays three at the back because you can then release both wing-backs at the same time. If you play four at the back, so let's imagine we switch to four at the back for a moment. <clears throat> Put Hayden the right back for the sake of it. Um, you, you can commit Hayden forwards, but you're not going to be comfortable sending McFadden forwards as well necessarily. So you know, full backs in the back four tend one stays back, one goes forwards. Whereas wing backs, they both can more comfortably because you've got a player like Hayden who might join in a little bit, but he's more inclined, he's quick, he can get back quickly and provide that cover. <clears throat> this is the concept of rest defence which is the shape you have when you've got the ball to make sure you're still safe. And that's where O'Connor comes in really handy. Pardon me. O'Connor's more of a defensive midfielder than um, Young is, really. And so what you get is that he'll sit in a little bit here. So let's get back to more of a sort of traditional three-the-back shape. <coughs> Pardon me. Wing-backs go up. Two strikers, sorry, Elliot Lee, get back in your position. But O'Connor is a bit more inclined to just sit off a little bit. Now, this is good for two reasons. One, I said this idea of rest defence, the, the shape we have when we've got the ball to protect us from counter-attack. So we get into our attacking shape. Ford's come inside. Hayden has committed himself up there. Tony Cliff does it sometimes the other side. Cleworth does it a lot on the other side. Um, and this is, well, I mean, the team has evolved, but this is part of the point here. O'Connor is more inclined to sit off here, and that gives us a little bit more safety. Let's get a few more of their team on the pitch, shall we? What a cheek they've got. Tony, but the race course expecting to be able to play. Unbelievable. So, they've got their players, and they're trying to cover us. What we don't want is them to win the ball back and we've overcommitted. And this is why I think Cleworth lost his place. And I'm, I'm not criticising Cleworth. I think it's that Parkinson, understandably, was keen to use his ability to go forwards. 
But the problem was, Cluith, going forward, so we pretend Tunnicliffe's Cluith, would really get into incredibly advanced positions and we would get caught out. He'd go a long way up. He had no chance of getting back. McFadgen didn't either. And we started to have defensive problems around here on, the, on our left because teams were spotting this and were exploiting it. Remember the Dover game? They had a very quick player on the right and they kept switching it to him all the time. You've got Cluith and, and McFadgen up the pitch and they were just, the moment they got the ball, they were just very quickly hitting diagonals, bang, out into that open spoke here. So beg your pardon. They were banging these long, early diagonals out into the open space and he was getting onto it and then Gaiassi in the middle was quick getting into the centre as well and they were causing us all sorts of problems because then you got an issue. Tozer's coming across. Tozer's not massively quick. Hayden's coming across. They're bombing through. If someone else comes through, you've got a problem. Now, in, the, in those days... Young playing in an O'Connor role, we were more like that, our sort of rest defence position. Hang on a second, pull that back. We are more like that, and maybe a little more vulnerable, because Young as a centre mid was trying to join in a bit, and Cluworth was getting very advanced. Not saying he can't do that, but he was doing it a lot. Under instruction, not knocking him, O'Connor just takes that slightly deeper, 10 yards deeper position in midfield, and he provides that little extra bit of cover. So if, if they do that, Cluith or Tundercliffe goes up and that, this breakaway happens, quick diagonal into the space, Tozer's coming across. Tozer's not quick, but he's very good at one-on-one. -on -one. If he can get close enough to engage this player, you're back Tozer. Because Tozer's very good at getting close to players and running them off into harmless areas where they're more focused on retaining the ball and Tozer not getting it from them. And while that happens, the game slows down and we get our players back. But now, with McConnor here, we've got Hayden on the cover, but O'Connor can come back quickly because he's mobile, and we have got three men back there. And all of a sudden, that doesn't look such a threatening situation, does it? Um, so that that's the reason we use O'Connor. It's been interesting how the team's evolved throughout the season. Because, like I said, if I go back to that again, I'll stop this in a minute. I'm getting, I'm getting a bit tedious. And I, I admit the numbers are wrong now, and the players are wrong, but... The way we played last season, we had a right wing back getting forwards and McFadden getting forwards. We had Clueth in the number six role. We had Young in that central role, but playing a bit higher up, not really as a defensive midfielder. And these three midfielders would stay quite compact. It'd be Jones on the right and Jordan Davis on the left. And they'd keep it quite compact, but we, we were letting goals in, weren't we, in key times because we were starting to overcome it, like I just described. Now, when Lee's come into the team... There's the problem of assimilating him into the system. And initially, what Parkinson did was keep the three at the back, but he essentially used two midfielders. O'Connor got injured, which I wonder if he'd have kept doing this if he hadn't have done. But Jones and Young usually were in there. And Lee, when he played Lee, would try and slot into there. And the idea was these two maybe have to be a tiny bit more conservative, but we have got three out-and-out -out attacking players in Palmer, Mullin and Lee didn't quite work because we lost that dynamic that smooth passing movement and that familiarity that the players had with the system it just didn't quite work it wasn't a criticism of Lee but it just knocked us a tiny bit off kilter and it didn't quite work um, so the key alterations have been bringing Tony Cliff in I say no Chris McClure, but Tony Cliff's a very good centre back, real, really good defensive qualities, and he's much more conservative. He doesn't join in as much. You'll notice when we are attacking on the left, he'll often take these positions, 
so that if McFadden's got the ball, he wants to receive it and he can link play or move it around. But he doesn't often, he, do, he does occasionally, he doesn't often try to actually link up with McFadden in these areas, which Kluwer did all the time. Kluwer would often go beyond McFadden to the edge of the box. Tony Cliff doesn't really much. Um, so that was one alteration. It stiffened up this side of the pitch. And that then, I think it's fair to say, because the point of Lee is, I think the assumption was, without the ball, he's not you know, a natural defender. The notion, I think, was that then, your midfield free... Lee has got the cover of Tunnicliffe rather than Clueth and McFadden charging up and we can try and play him as a left in the midfield three and that has worked exceptionally well partly because there is genuine stability now on that side of the pitch and also because to be fair to Lee he puts in a fabulous shift defensively I mean he really has committed to the more defensive responsibilities of that role playing off the two strikers he would not be expected to do half as much and uh, he's thrown into it himself into it with gusto hasn't he so that's worked beautifully. Oh, I forgot to say, when I say about O'Connor having the slightly deeper position, the other reason that's a good thing is because we're popping it around, we're moving it around. We've got him as a sort of fixed point. So if, if we run down a dead end or we're in danger of losing it, say Lee's coming, he's run at people, he can turn, he knows O'Connor's going to be around here. He knows he can look for him. O'Connor is like a continuity player. I'm reluctant to say quarterback. Although I will say that like, O'Connor's not likely to be pinging epic, amazing passes through like that. But he is a very good passer of the ball. He's a very good first-time passer of the ball. He clearly plays with his head up. If you watch him run, you can see he's quite upright in the way he runs. He plays with his head up. He, he keeps looking around himself all the time. He's one of those players. He is a high-level player, O'Connor. I really rate him. I'm glad he's getting pitch time now. Um, he, he, he's got a picture in his head all the time of where players should be. And you watch your pop balls off first time, bang, straight to the straight onto the strong foot of a player. He's good. You know, the move's breaking down. Oh dear, sorry. Move's breaking down, pop it back to O'Connor, bang, first time. And then all of a sudden that defence from thinking, yeah, Lee's had to run into a dead end, and now thinking, whoa, hang on. A second later, it's over here now. How'd that happen? And they've got to readjust, reshuffle, and there's chances there'll be gaps. That's the that's the theory. I'm gonna stop talking now. Because I... Oh, should I show you the... All right, I'm not going to stop. Talking. One quick thing, and I swear to God, I'll pack it in. You can get on with your lives. The change we make when we're desperate for a goal, like we did against Bromley. So what we do is we'll take... Tunnicliffe's usually the one who comes off. And we'll put on a more attacking player. And we switch from a three to a four at the back. Now... The consequences of this are that Ford and McFadden have got to be more conservative. They can't make simultaneous charges down the pitch like this. They will still go forwards, though, because this is a way Parkinson tries to open up again by taking a risk. Now, Tunnicliffe's come off, an attacking player will come on, or a midfield player will come on. Let's say he brings James Jones on. And then what he'll do is he'll, he'll switch to a 4-4-2 diamond. So a 4-4-2 diamond is this. So you're You've got four midfielders, but they make a diamond shape. So I'll get these guys out of the way now for the moment. O'Connor is the anchor, the deep part of the diamond. You're going to have two players here, side players in the diamond. So we'll say Young, well, okay, I'll put it the other way. Young and Jones. And then Lee playing up in this position I mentioned before behind the strikers, which I think is, is his perfect position because he can create and he's got two players to try and find with the ball. 
this is an ultra-attacking setup, the way that Parkinson does it. You can start like this. In fact, Dean Keats used to use it, and I used to think it was the opposite, a way to make a team more solid, because you've got a compact four defenders, and you've got a guy sitting in front of them, and then these guys go like that, and it's quite hard to get through the middle of our team. <laughs> and if, if, it, if you run at our full-backs, you've naturally got players who can come across to cover. So it can be used as a defensive setup, and it can be used to stifle a game. But Parkinson uses it as an emergency attacking measure. So he'll have two strikers up. Sometimes you bring Dolby on, and you use Mullen. And this, that's what he did against Bromley, isn't it, actually? He put Dolby on, he used Mullen behind the strikers, Palmer and Dolby, and Lee was in this position still. That's a heck of a lot of firepower, isn't it? Two strikers in the box, Mullen and Lee, all trying to create. So that's a... That's a heck of a thing, isn't it? But this is the, the concept of it, essentially, is that these players will still try to join in to give a little bit of width in the attack. But you've got Lee buzzing around. He can come through the middle. You've got these two players who have to take... So, like I say, normally Young and Jones would do a lot of work getting up and down, up and down. They really would, but you think of Young and Jones. Well, I, I little Freudian slip. I said Lung and Jones. Those two have got lungs that last all day, haven't they? So they will be there working like that. Um, it's a very attacking setup that we use. Um, so that's the reason he does it. Uh, that's why the idea that he's inflexible tactically, which people have said, and that he is defensive is crazy. Because he's clearly looked at the National League and thought, right, okay, I'll be, buy players in, as we saw before, from higher levels, and I will back them to blow teams away and be attacking. He could be more cautious when we get promoted, but for now, this is his approach. Right, you know what? I better go. Goodness me, you've all got families to go back to. Tell them that you love them. And you're sorry, but this bloke kept you. Okay? I'll stop now. Um, and, well, I'll speak to you next week. Let me know if the tactical thing works and you want me to do more of that or less. Let me know. Adios, muchachos. I'm Mark Griffiths from Wrexham AFC. This is the Final Whistle Podcast from the Rexham AFC media team.